Chapter 5. The Self-Existence of God Lord of all being, thou alone canst affirm, I am that I am. Yet we who were made in thine image may each one repeat, I am, so confessing that we derive from thee, and that our words are but an echo of thine own. We acknowledge thee to be the great original of which we, through thy goodness, are grateful if imperfect copies. We worship thee, O Father everlasting. Amen. God has no origin, said Novatian, and it is precisely this concept of no origin which distinguishes that which is God from whatever is not God. Origin is a word that can apply only to things created. When we think of anything that has origin, we are not thinking of God. God is self-existent, while all created things necessarily originated somewhere at some time. Aside from God, nothing is self-caused. By our effort to discover the origin of things, we confess our belief that everything was made by someone who was made of none. By familiar experience, we are taught that everything came from something else. Whatever exists must have had a cause that antedates it and was at least equal to it, since the lesser cannot produce the greater. Any person or thing may be at once both caused and the cause of someone or something else. And so back to the one who is the cause of all, but is himself caused by none. The child by his question, where did God come from, is unwittingly acknowledging his creaturehood. Already the concept of cause and source and origin is firmly fixed in his mind. He knows that everything around him came from something other than itself, and he simply extends that concept upward to God. The little philosopher is thinking in true creature idiom, and allowing for his lack of basic information, he is reasoning correctly. He must be told that God has no origin, and he will find this hard to grasp since it introduces a category with which he is wholly unfamiliar and contradicts the bent toward origin-seeking, so deeply ingrained in all intelligent beings, a bent that impels them to probe ever back and back toward undiscovered beginnings. To think steadily of that to which the idea of origin cannot apply is not easy, if indeed it is possible at all. Just as under certain conditions a tiny point of light can be seen, not by looking directly at it but by focusing the eye slightly to one side, so it is with the idea of the uncreated. When we try to focus our thought upon one who is pure uncreated being, we may see nothing at all, for he dwelleth in light that no man can approach unto. Only by faith and love are we able to glimpse him as he passes by our shelter in the cleft of the rock. And although this knowledge is very cloudy, vague and general, says Michael D. Molyneux, yet being supernatural, it produces a far more clear and perfect cognition of God than any sensible or particular apprehension of that can be formed in this life. Since all corporeal and sensible images are immeasurably remote from God, the human mind being created 
has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is wholly outside of the circle of our familiar knowledge. We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being, who is responsible to no one, who is self-existent, self-dependent and self-sufficient. Philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God. The reason being that they are dedicated to the task of accounting for things and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account of itself. The philosopher and the scientist will admit that there is much that they do not know, but that is quite another thing from admitting there is something which they can never know, which indeed they have no technique for discovering. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet, how he eludes us. For he is everywhere, while he is nowhere. For where has to do with matter and space. And God is independent of both. He is unaffected by time or motion, is wholly self-dependent, and owes nothing to the words his hands have made. Faber says, Timeless, spaceless, single, lonely, yet sublimely three. Thou art grandly, always, only God in unity. Love in grandeur, lone in glory. Who shall tell thy wondrous story? Awful Trinity. It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labour to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. Few of us have let our hearts gaze in wonder at the I am, the self-existent self, back of which no creature can think. Such thoughts are too painful for us. We prefer to think where it will do more good, about how to build a better mousetrap, for instance, or how to make two blades of grass grow where one grew before. And for this we are now paying a too heavy price in the secularisation of our religion and the decay of our inner lives. Perhaps some sincere but puzzled Christian may at this juncture wish to inquire about the practicality of such concepts, as I am trying to set forth here. What bearing does this have on my life, he may ask? What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this and in times such as these? To this I reply, because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. The much-quoted advice of Alexander Pope, 
which says, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. If followed literally, would destroy any possibility of man's ever knowing himself in any but the most superficial way. We can never know who or what we are till we know at least something of what God is. For this reason, the self-existence of God is not a wisp of dry doctrine, academic and remote. It is, in fact, as near as our breath and as practical as the latest surgical technique. For reasons known only to God himself, God honoured man above all other beings by creating him in his own image. And let it be understood that the divine image in man is not a poetic fancy, nor an idea born of religious longing. It is a solid theological fact, taught plainly throughout the sacred scriptures, and recognised by the church as a truth necessary to a right understanding of the Christian faith. Man is a created being, a derived and contingent self, who of himself possesses nothing, but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. Think God away, and man has no ground of existence. That God is everything and man nothing is a basic tenet of Christian faith and devotion. And here the teachings of Christianity coincide with those of the more advanced and philosophical religions of the East. Man for all his genius is but an echo of the original voice, a reflection of the uncreated light. As a sunbeam perishes when cut off from the sun, so man apart from God would pass back into the void of nothingness from which he first leaped at the creative call. Not man only, but everything that exists came out of and is dependent upon the continuing creative impulse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is how John explains it, and with him agrees the Apostle Paul. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and are, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. To this witness, the writer to the Hebrews adds his voice, testifying of Christ that he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In this utter dependence of all things upon the creative will of God lies the possibility for both holiness and sin. One of the marks of God's image in man is his ability to exercise moral choice. The teaching of Christianity is that man chose to be independent of God and confirmed his choice by deliberately disobeying a divine command, This act violated the relationship that normally existed between God and his creature. It rejected God as the ground of existence and threw man back upon himself. Thereafter, he became not a planet revolving around the eternal sun, but a sun in his own right, around which everything else must revolve. 
A more positive assertion of selfhood could not be imagined than those words of God to Moses. I am that I am. Everything God is, everything that is God, is set forth in that unqualified declaration of independent being. Yet in God, self is not sin, but the quintessence of all possible goodness, holiness and truth. The natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God. In his own life, he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes self. And in this, he is unconsciously imitating Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning who said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Yet so subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still, in his own eyes, a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being, created to worship before the throne of God, sits on the throne of his own selfhood, and from that elevated position, declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. It is only when in the gospel the soul is brought before the face of the Most Holy One without the protective shield of ignorance that the frightful moral incongruity is brought home to the conscience. In the language of evangelism, the man who is thus confronted by the fiery presence of Almighty God is said to be under conviction. Christ referred to this when he said of the Spirit whom he would send to the world, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The earliest fulfillment of these words of Christ was at Pentecost after Peter had preached the first great Christian sermon. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This, what shall we do? is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realised that he is a usurper and sits on a stolen throne. However painful, it is precisely this acute moral consternation that produces true repentance and makes a robust Christian after the penitent has been dethroned and has found forgiveness and peace through the gospel. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard, and we may, with equal truth, turn this about and declare the essence of sin is to will one thing. For to set our will against the will of God is to dethrone God and make ourselves supreme in the little kingdom. 
of man's soul. This is sin at its evil root. Sins may multiply like the sands by the seashore, but they are yet one. Sins are because sin is. This is the rationale behind the much maligned doctrine of natural depravity, which holds that the impenitent man can do nothing but sin and that his good deeds are really not good at all. His best religious works God rejects and he rejected the offering of Cain. Only when he has restored his stolen throne to God are his works acceptable. The struggle of the Christian man to be good while the bent towards self-assertion still lives within him as a kind of unconscious moral reflex is vividly described by the Apostle Paul in the seventh chapter of his Roman epistle. And his testimony is in full accord with the teaching of the prophets. 800 years before the advent of Christ, the prophet Isaiah identified sin as rebellion against the will of God and the assertion of the right of each man to choose for himself the way he should go. All we like sheep have gone astray, he said. We have turned every one to his own way. And I believe that no more accurate description of sin has ever been given. The witness of the saints has been in full harmony with prophet and apostle that an inward principle of self lies at the source of human conduct, turning everything men do into evil. To save us completely, Christ must reverse the bent of our nature. He must plant a new principle within us so that our subsequent conduct will spring out of a desire to promote the honour of God and the good of our fellow men. The old self-sins must die and the only instrument by which they can be slain is the cross. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, said our Lord. And years later, the victorious Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Tozer closes this chapter with a Greek hymn. My God, shall sin its power maintain, and in my soul defiant live? Tis not enough that thou forgive, the cross must rise and self be slain. O God of love, thy power disclose, tis not enough that Christ should rise. I too must seek the brightening skies, and rise from death as Christ arose. Chapter 6, The Self-Sufficiency of God Teach us, O God, that nothing is necessary to thee. Were anything necessary to thee, that thing would be the measure of thine imperfection. And how could we worship one who is not perfect? If nothing is necessary to thee, then no one is necessary, and if no one, then not we. Thou dost seek us, though thou dost not need us. We seek thee because we need thee, for in thee we live and move and have our being. Amen. The Father hath life in himself, said our Lord, and it is characteristic of his teaching that he thus in a brief sentence sets forth truth so lofty as to transcend the highest reaches of human thought. 
God, he said, is self-sufficient. He is what he is in himself, in the final meaning of those words. Whatever God is, and all that God is, he is in himself. All life is in and from God, whether it is the lowest form of unconscious life or the highly self-conscious, intelligent life of a seraph. No creature has life in itself. All life is a gift from God. The life of God, conversely, is not a gift from another. Were there another from whom God could receive the gift of life, or indeed any gift, whatever, that other would be God, in fact. An elementary but correct way to think of God is as the one who contains all, who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he is not first given. To admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. Again, we must reverse the familiar flow of our thoughts and try to understand that which is unique, that which stands alone as being true in this situation and nowhere else. Our common habits of thought allow for the existence of need among created things. Nothing is complete in itself but requires something outside itself in order to exist. All breathing things need air. Every organism needs food and water. Take air and water from the earth and all life would perish instantly. It may be stated as an axiom that to stay alive, every created thing needs some other created thing and all things need God. To God alone, nothing is necessary. The river grows larger by its tributaries. But where is the tributary that can enlarge the one out of whom came everything and to whose infinite fullness all creation owes its being? Faber says, Unfathomable sea, all life is out of thee, and thy life is thy blissful unity. The problem of why God created the universe still troubles thinking men. But if we cannot know why, we can at least know that he did not bring his worlds into being to meet some unfulfilled need in himself, as a man might build a house to shelter him against the winter cold or plant a field of corn to provide him with necessary food. The word necessary is wholly foreign to God. Since he is the being supreme overall, it follows that God cannot be elevated. Nothing is above him, nothing beyond him. Any motion in his direction is elevation for the creature. Away from him, descent. He holds his position out of himself and by leave of none. And no one can promote him, so no one can degrade him. It is written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. How can he be raised or supported by the things he upholds? Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night, for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, 
were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favour is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by our desert or by divine necessity. Probably the hardest thought for all of our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But as said the Lady Julian, I saw truly that God doeth all thing, be it never so little. The God who worketh all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. Again, God needs no defenders. He is the eternal undefended. To communicate with us in an idiom we can understand, God in the scriptures makes full use of military terms, but surely it was never intended that we should think of the throne of the majesty on high as being under siege, with Michael and his hosts, or some other heavenly beings, defending it from stormy overthrow. So to think is to misunderstand everything the Bible would tell us about God. Neither Judaism nor Christianity could approve such puerile notions. A God who must be defended is one who can help us only while someone is helping him. We may count upon him only if he wins in the cosmic seesaw battle between right and wrong. Such a God could not command the respect of intelligent men. He could only excite their pity. To be right, we must think worthily of God. It is morally imperative that we purge from our minds all ignoble concepts of the deity and let him be the God in our minds that he is in his universe. The Christian religion has to do with God and man, but its focal point is God, not man. Man's only claim to importance is that he was created in the divine image. In himself, he is nothing. 
The psalmists and prophets of the scriptures refer in sad scorn to weak man whose breath is in his nostrils, who grows up like the grass in the morning only to be, only to be cut down and wither before the setting of the sun. That God exists for himself and man for the glory of God is the emphatic teaching of the Bible. The high honour of God is first in heaven, as it must yet be in earth. From all this, we may begin to understand why the Holy Scriptures have so much to say about the vital place of faith and why they brand unbelief as a deadly sin. Among all created beings, not one dare trust in itself. God alone trusts in himself. All other beings must trust in him. Unbelief is actually perverted faith, for it puts its trust not in the living God, but in dying men. The unbeliever denies the self-sufficiency of God and usurps attributes that are not his. This dual sin dishonours God and ultimately destroys the soul of man. In his love and pity, God came to us as Christ. This has been the consistent position of the church from the days of the apostles. It is fixed for Christian belief in the doctrine of the incarnation of the eternal Son. In recent times, however, this has come to mean something different from and less than what it meant to the early church, i.e. the man Jesus, as he appeared in the flesh, has been equated with the Godhead and all his human weaknesses and limitations attributed to the deity. The truth is that the man who walked among us was a demonstration, not of unveiled deity, but of perfect humanity. The awful majesty of the Godhead was mercifully sheathed in the soft envelope of human nature to protect mankind. Go down, God told Moses on the mountain. Charge the people lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. And later, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Christians today appear to know Christ only after the flesh. They try to achieve communion with him by divesting him of his burning holiness and unapproachable majesty. The very attributes he veiled while on earth but assumed in fullness of glory upon his ascension to the Father's right hand. The Christ of popular Christianity has a weak smile and a halo. He has become someone up there who likes people, at least some people, and these are grateful but not too impressed. If they need him, he also needs them. Let us not imagine that the truth of the divine self-sufficiency will paralyse Christian activity. Rather, it will stimulate all holy endeavour. This truth, while a needed rebuke to human self-confidence, will, when viewed in its biblical perspective, lift from our minds the exhausting load of mortality and encourage us to take the easy yoke of Christ and spend ourselves in spirit-inspired toil for the honour of God and the good of mankind. For the blessed news is that the God who needs no one has, in sovereign condescension, stooped to work by and in and through his obedient children. If all this appears self-contradictory, amen, be it so. 
The various elements of truth stand in perpetual antithesis, sometimes requiring us to believe apparent opposites while we wait for the moment when we shall know as we are known. Then truth, which now appears to be in conflict with itself, will arise in shining unity and it will be seen that the conflict has not been in the truth but in our sin-damaged minds. In the meanwhile, our inner fulfilment lies in loving obedience to the commandments of Christ and the inspired admonitions of his apostles. It is God which worketh in you. He needs no one. But when faith is present, he works through anyone. Two statements are in this sentence, and a healthy spiritual life requires that we accept both. For a full generation, the first has been in almost total eclipse, and that to our deep spiritual injury. Fountain of good, all blessing flows from thee. No want thy fullness knows. What but thyself canst thou desire? Yet self-sufficient as thou art, thou dost desire my worthless heart. This only this dost thou require. Johann Scheffler <laughs>